So we're back to the book of Acts, and it's been a few weeks, so let me just refresh your memory of of where we've been. First, Jesus comes to the disciples, and uh, he's been with them after his resurrection for 40 days, and he says to them, hey, uh, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples go and they wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit does come. He comes upon all of the disciples who are praying together in the upper room. And they go out and they are filled with courage and boldness to tell everyone about Jesus, even though that's risky business. Jesus has just been executed by the mob and by the authorities of the Jewish and Roman people. So going out and talking about Jesus wasn't safe, but the Holy Spirit made them bold to do it anyway. And the second thing is that people had gathered on the day of Pentecost from all over the Roman Empire. Jews from every corner of the Roman Empire had come together. And most of them hadn't grown up speaking Aramaic or certainly Hebrew, but speaking whatever language of the land that they lived in. And yet the apostles were all speaking every different language of the people who were there by the Holy Spirit. It was, it was a miracle. It was amazing. And then there was this amazing response. The crowds that had only weeks before hung Jesus on the cross. Now 3,000 of them decided they wanted to serve Jesus for the rest of their lives. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Anyone here like a ministry like that? I mean, don't, don't we all, one of the challenges of reading the book of Acts is that we, we come across these stories, like, okay, so you know, they're all scared and hiding in an upper room, and we can identify with that. Like, we're, it's hard to tell people about Jesus. We feel like people will, will be angry with us, or will we'll think we're stupid, or, or whatever it is. We're afraid to do this. We can identify with the disciples in the upper room, praying and waiting, But it's hard to identify with the disciples in the streets doing miracles and telling everyone about Jesus and having this amazing response. The temptation is to think something is terribly wrong with our church because those sorts of things don't happen here. Well, I just want to remind you, first of all, that the book of Acts doesn't cover every Sunday that the church got together. It covers the most significant and the most important Sundays. And I think that if we did a similar thing over the 100 years, 100 plus years of history that our church has, we'd be able to pick out some Book of Acts moments as well. Some of them more subtle, some of them maybe just as powerful as what we saw on Pentecost Sunday. I think if we look back over our own lives, we can do the same thing. As a matter of fact, this week, I would love it if everyone would go home. And if you would try and sketch out, take an hour or two and try and sketch out what has my life, if I was to write a biography, I guess it's an autobiography of my life knowing Jesus, what are the stories that I would tell? I I think it's really significant to do that for your own encouragement, and so that someday when people are like, you know, what's Christianity all about anyway, or when they're criticizing Christians, or when they say, I think I want to meet Jesus, you're ready to tell them something about who Jesus is, because he has showed up in your life, and he has showed up in your life in all sorts of different ways. I encourage you to do that. So I don't want us to come to the book of Acts and think, man, our church is nothing like that. 
think our church is quite a bit like it, but I think we also should be inspired by the church in the book of Acts. And what we have here in in this passage, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, what we have is one of several summary statements of this is, is just generally what was happening in the church in those days. Now, uh, several years ago, just to set the scene for us, several years ago, George Clausen and I walked through uh, the church facilities, all the different buildings, and we were trying to get a feel for, you know, how, how many people can we fit in here? And are these facilities, uh, are they still useful to us? Do they need to be, excuse me, <coughs> do they need to be changed or upgraded or updated? Uh, do we need a building project? Is everything great? You know, how's this going? One of the things, one of the reasons we did this is because I believe, if I'm remembering this right, uh, not long before we had had an Easter Sunday where 120 people showed up to church. 120 people. And we were putting chairs in the aisles and outside the aisles and in the back. I mean, we, we were totally out of room in the sanctuary. And we wanted to get a sense of what do we, you know, when do we need more room and how do we deal with that? And so we looked at the sanctuary and we figured we can get about 80 people in here comfortably. You you might have to hunt for a seat, but there will be a seat for you. You can fit about 80 people in these pews. Now, if we really wanted to squeeze them, we could probably get between 100 and 120. We could put them in the choir loft. We could put them you know, behind the partition there. We could put chairs in the aisles. You know, the fire marshal probably wouldn't approve, but we could make it happen. We could probably squeeze 120 people in here, although we wouldn't want to on a regular basis. See, that day when, when we had all those people show up to church, it opened our eyes to two things. It made us excited because we thought, look at this amazing thing that God is doing. But it also made us concerned because we thought, we're not ready for all of these people to show up. This is a problem if this many people show up on Sundays. It's a good problem, but it's still a problem. And how are we going to solve it? Well, I think the church in Acts chapter 2 was running into a similar sort of circumstance because where we had 120 people trying to fit it into a building we have specifically set up for the church to meet together, the, you know, the, the tens or maybe a couple hundreds of, of, of disciples of Jesus who were in Jerusalem had just added 3,000 new disciples and they didn't have a building anywhere. They just had people's homes. And on top of that, these people came from all over the Roman Empire. Now, let let me ask you something. When people who are uh, different get together, sometimes you get arguments and disagreements, don't you? It's not always easy to get along. You might not all speak the same language. But let, let me drive the point home for you this way. There are 30 to 40 people sitting in the pews right now. We have about 80 people connected to the church in one way or another, who at some point have regularly attended and and we're expecting back at some point. Do you get along easily with all of those 80 people? And and we're pretty alike. 
We all live in generally the same place. I know we like to thumb our nose at Three Rivers or something like that. Those three, they drive like crazy people. And I see you Three Rivers people here this morning. And, and then we, maybe we look at Exeter and we're kind of like those fancy people out in Exeter. They think they're so great. And then we look at the Lemon Cove people and we say, well, they're pretty good. So I'm just kidding. Like we've all, we all are pretty similar for the most part. And yet it's not always easy for us to get together. To, to get along together, is it? It's not always easy. I mean, we, there are things that we do at the church, and some people are like, I'm not interested in that at all. Like, I don't like eating food, you monster. I don't know who you are. <laughs> I figure if we serve food, everyone will come, but not everybody comes, right? We, it's hard to appeal to everyone all at the same time. We've got different circumstances in life. Like We all have different amounts of money, where some of us are retired and some are not. We all have worked different jobs. We all have different learning styles. It's hard even for just 80 people who live in the same place, who are very much alike. It's hard for us all to get along together. And this church has just added 3,000 people from all over the world. I mean, it's got to fail, right? It's got to fail. There's no way it will work. But it does. It does. When Jesus is the main thing, all of those differences, none of them are big enough or important enough or significant enough to drive us apart. You know why churches fight over paint color? Because Jesus is not at the center of their love and service. Do you know why churches fight over what kind of ministry should we do? Because we're more concerned with the form of the ministry than we are with the one that we serve and worship. See, when we disagree, it should be an invitation for us to stop and say, you know what, we need to set our eyes back on Jesus right now. Not because Jesus intends for us to always robotically agree with each other, but because when our disagreements threaten to divide it shows that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus Christ. I think that this summary statement here is, it's both a statement of what it was, what the reality was in the church, and a vision statement of what everyone agreed, this is the kind of people we are striving to be. And let me tell you three things that this church was focused on. This is a vision statement for the church that is already being realized. And the first part of that vision statement is that the church obeyed and benefited from the good authorities that were given to it. The church obeyed and benefited from the good authorities given to it. <coughs> Has there ever been a more difficult time to make a statement like that? I don't know. But I think maybe not. Our trust in institutions and in leaders and in authorities is just about at an all-time low, isn't it? I was talking with somebody earlier this week, and, and you know the conversation uh, turned to politics. And one of the things you know, for me I, I shared is, you know what the hard thing for me is? 
It's hard for me to not be cynical about all of it. It's hard for me to not look out at every representative and every governor and every president and paint them all with the same brush and say they're just in it for themselves. They don't care about the people that they serve. The only one they're serving is is their own ambition and self-interest. I told you, uh, I listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And uh, Mars Hill was a megachurch in the Seattle area. At one point, there were almost 10,000 people connected to it. And uh, as you can tell from the podcast title, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, it didn't end well. Because the authorities in that church abused their power and authority or were simply absent and not providing the oversight they were supposed to be providing until it all blew up. And when it blew up, it didn't just make news in Christian circles. It was national news. There were articles in the Seattle Times every day about how that church was falling apart. Everyone saw it happening. How can we possibly say that the church ought to obey and benefit from the good authorities given to it? Because we're not just talking about Jesus in heaven. We're talking about the apostles themselves. Listen to what the passage says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's not a, a weak or vacillating statement, isn't it? It's not saying they listened to the apostles and the things that they liked they did and the things they didn't like they didn't do. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. How do we possibly have leadership like that in our churches? Well, Cal last week was reading to us out of the pastoral epistles. Uh, First and second Timothy and Titus are the three pastoral letters in the New Testament. And those letters tell us what kind of leaders we should look for in our churches. And I love, you know, just like Cal, I take a lot of wisdom and and direction from those things. This is what I should be like. This is what I need to strive for as a pastor. Uh, But not just this. This is what I need to hold the rest of the leaders in the church accountable to as a member of the church. Here's, again, what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It goes on quite a bit longer, and we're not going to cover all of these things today, but I just wanted to read a snippet of that and say, first of all, when we... Uh, raise people to leadership in the church, we recognize that they are responsible to be accountable to Jesus Christ and to the word that he has left us. Because the highest authority in the church is not the leader who stands up front, but it is the scripture that he is required to obey. And folks, we can do that as a church. 
We can have good leaders if we individually and as a church will be people who soak in the word of God, who know it and understand it and require each other and the pastor in love, not you know telling I told you so or I love to tell people what to do, but saying here is what God lays out for it and you must live up to it for your own sake and for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. We can have good leaders if we remember our leaders are meant to be as obedient to the scripture as we are. And not to throw rocks when I live in a glass house myself, but one of the things that comes out so quickly and clearly if if you listen to that podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill is that Pastor Driscoll did not live up to this. And there were people in the church who were willing to turn a blind eye to it because of the results that he was getting. We're a church of 10,000. How can we criticize our pastor just because he's not gentle and he wasn't gentle? See, that's, that's the way the world looks at things, isn't it? What we care about most are results. We care about the bottom line. How big was your profit at the end of the year? Not How well did you live? Because nothing is more important than our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. We can have these sorts of leaders in our church who are worthy of our obedience if we will hold them to account. And folks, you notice that this part of the message is about what you need to do for me. And what you need to do for the elders in the church and for all the leaders in the church. I need you to do this so I can be a leader who is worthy of your obedience. It's not optional. If we want a church like the Acts Church that's full of all of these good things, we got to own it. And that leads us to the next point. The church had fellowship with each other. Again, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. What does that mean? I think uh, fellowship is one of the words that we, we have a general sense of what it's about and what it means, but if we actually stop and think about it, we'll realize we don't have a deep understanding of it. Fellowship is what we do when we get together. Now, that's true. Something about a relationship with each other is important to our life in Jesus Christ. But that word koinonia in Greek, translated in English as fellowship, really means that we participate with each other in something. Maybe the best definition I can give to it is it is our full participation in a shared mission, which includes brotherly love and sisterly love for each other that results in real life together. Folks, as a church, what is our mission? I'm not asking actually about our mission statement back there, which someone has pointed out to me are really more value statements than a mission statement. What is our mission just because we are disciples of Jesus Christ? Yeah, share the word. That's right. 
The last words of Jesus to his disciples before his ascension. Therefore, go. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So everywhere you go, everything that you do, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is our mission as the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that mission is not just something that is for, it's not unrelated to our life in Jesus Christ. It's not like Jesus said, I'm going to give you eternal life, and in return, I want you to tell everybody else about who I am. But you see, those things are, it's transactional. They don't flow naturally out of each other. If we say, well, I'm just going to tell other people about Jesus because that's the price of my eternal life. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying, has your life been, have I changed your life for the better? Are you more because you know me? Is your salvation worth something? Then act like it. That's all, act like it. Be who you are. Be saved people. What do saved people do? They tell everyone, I've been saved. Because it really matters in their own life. See, if we are never interested in telling people about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, folks, Jesus hasn't done anything for us. If that is not part of our DNA, then we have not deeply connected with the work of Jesus in our life. This is another reason why I want you this week to, to write that spiritual autobiography because if you write it down and we start to, or you don't even have to write it. If you just go through it somehow in your own brain, on paper, telling it to somebody else, then you might find the motivation for mission there. Or you might find, I don't think I've really connected with Jesus in a deep and meaningful way in my life. And I need to do that. I either need to do that or I need to give it up. You know, Jesus is not a fan of zombie movies. Jesus does not love zombies. Because you know what he says to He says he wants all of you, not just part of you. He wants you to give him his whole life, and he wants to regenerate your whole life, not little bits. If we are trying to be little bit Christians, we're trying to be zombies. And zombies stink. That's no way to live. See, the church had fellowship together because they had all been saved. And because they'd been saved by Jesus, they are now saying, we can't keep this to ourselves. How do we tell everybody? How do we let everybody know what's different? How do we include the whole world in this wonderful, amazing thing that we found in Jesus Christ? That's fellowship. That's fellowship. And do you start to see how some of our differences will just start to melt away with that? Um, if you're married here today, let me ask you, are you exactly like your spouse? No. Right? You, no, we're not. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> Which way did you mean that, Tom? Is it she's not like me or I'm not like... Yeah. We will be offering marriage counseling later this week. So. <laughs> oh. 
And you know what? Sometimes those differences, and it doesn't, you don't even have to be married, right? Maybe you've got a, a good friend, or maybe you've got children, or maybe you've got parents. And you know, those differences, sometimes they, they make us want to get away, don't they? Ah, oh, it drives me crazy that you do that. Why can't you be like me? Of course, sometimes we see ourselves and our spouse like, oh, that's not a good look either. So apparently we want to be like nothing. I don't know. But Here's, here's why I bring this up. We, we aren't 100% like each other all the time. Right? We're, we're different. We are. But that doesn't mean we can't love each other deeply, does it? Sometimes the differences are the things that we love and respect best about the people around us. This is why in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, it talks about the, the makeup of the church, and it uses the metaphor of a body. And it says each one of you is a part of the body. Some of you are, are a hand, and some of you are a foot, and some of you are an eye, and some of you are a nose. It says, but, but here's the thing. No part of the body can say to any other part, man, the body would be better if you weren't here. Right? Because if, if you said, man... I'm glad I'm an eye, because, you know, you need me to see. But you know what? You know what's bad is, is the feet, because the feet get smelly, and the feet are on the bottom, and we're always, you know, putting all of our weight and pressure on them. We don't need feet. But, of course, without feet, you're not going anywhere, are you? You're going to look at the same thing for the rest of your life. It's good that God gives us a variety and multitude of people. Our differences aren't meant to drive us apart, but rather to make us whole. And the church in Acts recognized this because maybe you don't need feet and hands and eyes or something else if you're not on a mission. But if you are on a mission, you need every part doing its job. That's what fellowship is like. And then finally, the church worshipped together. The church obeyed and benefited from the good authorities given to it. The church had real fellowship with each other because they were on a mission. And then finally, the church worshipped together. And this seems to be where they drew all of their life from. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and then to the breaking of bread and, pr and to prayer. Uh, we're not sure if when they say the breaking of bread, they mean just eating together or they mean actually celebrating communion together. There are people on both sides of that debate. But the rest of this passage goes on and it gives us a little bit more uh, to go on. It says, starting in verse 40, uh, 46, every day, not every Sunday, every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Because they didn't have a church building. That was their church. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. How? Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. You notice that when these people, their leader had just been put to death weeks ago on a cross, publicly executed. No one should think well of these rabble-rousers. And yet, when the church acted as the church, obeyed its good authorities, 
<coughs> had real fellowship together and worship together, people looked at them and said, there is something spectacular about that group of people, and I want to know more about them. You know, it's great if we just be the church, obeying the scriptures and the leaders who faithfully proclaim and live by the scriptures. If we just recognize we're not here to get fat and happy, we're here to get muscly and go out and use those muscles to do mission together so that everyone will know Jesus. And then if we go on giving God all the glory for everything that's happening in the midst of us, people will be attracted to that. Because we are made for relationship with the one true God. And it doesn't matter how much you might hate all the Christians you met before if you come across a real one who is living in the power of the Spirit in community with the people of God. You will say, I want that too. Even if I don't want it at all. I can't help but want that too. I don't know if J.R.R. Tolkien had all of this in mind when he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, you may have read that or you may have seen the movies. Uh, they're pretty well in the, in the popular consciousness these days. But do you remember what the first book, the first movie in that trilogy is called? Anybody? This is the participatory part. The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. The fellowship where two human beings, a wizard, four hobbits, a dwarf, and an elf. I think I got them all. People from all different sorts of races and, and backgrounds and experiences who had a mission together. And that mission, I mean, there were moments when they didn't like each other. There were moments where all they did was walking in the rain and they wished they were somewhere else doing anything else. But the friendships that they forged in service of their mission were the deepest friendships they had all of their lives long. I love at the end of that uh, story, when the bad guy is defeated and the good guys are all gathered together celebrating their victory and, and one of them is, is crowned king. And everybody, you know, is, is celebrating and bowing down to the king. And you, you come to the, the four hobbits, you know, who are the least important members. You know, they were the, the parts of the body that no one thought really mattered at all. And they went to bow before the king. And the king says, my friends, you bow to no one. Because of the mission that we achieved together. That's friendship and community. And maybe we ought to hold that in our hearts as we go on this week.